I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. Uh, what got you there? What got you, got you? If you're enjoying the podcast, then you might want to check out some of the other things I'm working on behind the scenes. I put out a weekly newsletter called Momentum Monday, which is just a quick synthesis of everything I've been reading, listening to, and watching during the week. I also do a once-a-month deep dive called The Distillery, which is a long-form distillation on someone whose thinking has greatly impacted me. You can check out past distillations of Josh Waitskin, Yen Liao, and Nick Konis, and everything else we're putting on at whatgotyouthere.com. Today, I'm joined by Liz Wiseman, who was originally on episode 56 of What Got You There. Liz is a former executive at Oracle, where she worked over the course of 17 years as the vice president of Oracle University. Liz is currently the president of the Wiseman Group, which is a leadership research and development firm with clients including people and companies such as Apple, Disney, Facebook, Nike, Salesforce, and Twitter. Liz has been listed on the Thinkers 50, ranking and named as one of the top 10 leadership thinkers in the world. On this episode, Liz talks about her new book, Impact Players, how to take the lead, play bigger, and multiply your impact. Impact Players will provide a much-needed playbook that will give rise to the important conversations about how to recognize and develop talent within oneself, a team, and across an entire company culture. If you care about improving your own abilities and those around you, you're going to love this episode with Liz Wiseman. Are you looking for a delicious and healthy nutrition bar that is keto-friendly, low-sugar, and protein-infused? If so, look no further than New School Snacks, who's reinventing the low-sugar snacking revolution. Now, for me, health is one of the biggest things I think about, and eliminating the sugar from my diet is crucial, and that's why I love New School Snacks. So if you're one of those people who also want to change the way you approach nutrition and snacking, then head to NewSchoolSnacks.com for great deals on their collagen bar loaded with healthy fats from MCT oil, and while you're there, pick up one of their brand new mouth-watering French Toast Crunch Bars. That's NewSchoolSnacks.com. Liz, welcome back to What Got You There. How are you doing today? You know, I'm doing great. I'm excited to, for us to continue a conversation we started a few years ago. Yeah, no, the, the continuation. Um, for, for anyone listening, didn't get to hear that. That, that was originally episode number 56, uh, where, where we dove more into your background and kind of what makes you tick. Uh, we're going to dive more into your, your recent work, which I am so excited about. I, I've really enjoyed. But I would love to know, since we're revisiting some things, is there a mindset of yours that if you could just pass on to anyone starting their career, and this is a mindset that you possess, you would love passing this on to, to other people? You know, Sean, that is such a great question. And it's something that no one's ever asked me. And I feel like I've been waiting my whole life to share this with people. So thank you. Is I think if there's a, a belief that has permeated my career and my work, it's that we have way more power than we think we have. And I think a lot of people go into situations and say, well, I'm not really in charge and this person's in charge and I can't do because of this. And, and I have just found over and over that in almost every situation where I am frustrated, that I have a lot more power than the situation would appear. And that if I just assume a sense of like, I'm in charge of myself. And I don't know, I think it's this take charge mentality is unless someone tells you you're not in charge of yourself and you're not in charge of the situation, you have power. And I, I guess I, I would, I see so many people who don't use the power that they have. I'm wondering for you, I mean, this is an incredible mindset. Is this something that was uncovered over time or, or were there, was there a changing point where like there was this a, a fork in the road type moment where, where you realized this power that you did have? Well, you know, this is one of the things I think I learned at a young age. And I had a father who was grumpy and gruff. And, you know, he was, he just struggled to communicate. And I saw my siblings kind of cower. So I was, you know, kind of in the vernacular you and I have talked about, I was raised by a multiplier mom and a diminisher dad. And my dad was very much a good person, but I saw how other people, you know, like kind of cowered from him. He was sort of a bit of a bully and I just would stand up to him and say, well, dad, that's, 
you know, this is what needs to happen, not this. And he would go, okay. And, you know, and my siblings started to come to me like, Liz, we want to go out on the boat this weekend, but we're afraid to ask dad. You ask him. I'm like, okay, I'll ask him. And, and so it was little by little, I think just growing up, like, wow, I'm not a victim of my dad's moods or that like, I can actually assert myself and, and change the situation. And then I think there might've been one, um, a bit of a turning point. And it was, uh, I was in high school and I was a new driver. I don't know that I've really shared this story with too many people, but I'm a new driver. And so, so I have to like date myself. This is back. This is way before we had cell phones. And so, you know, when you're in your car, you don't, you can't call AAA and just say, Hey, you know, um, my tire's flat, come help. So I'm driving home from my high school in the afternoon, evening or something, coming back from practice or something. And I see that there's a car pulled over on the side of the road. Someone's stranded there. And, you know, he's kind of waving. And and so I stop and pull over. I'm 16 years old. I'm a brand new driver. And I ask him if he needs help, but he's like, yeah, yeah, my car, blah, blah, blah. And I could use a lift. And so I'm driving my parents. It's like a little mini kind of truck, like a little Datsun kind of thing. And so, you know, he hops, hops in the cab. He lives, I don't know, a couple miles. I drive him to his house and I'm dropping him off. And the next thing I like his hands are all over me and he's, I'm like, Whoa, this guy's got the wrong idea about this. And, and I start to get, I mean, he's all over my side of the car and he's like, he's got his hands all over me. And, and I'm like, wow, this could go bad really fast. And like, it was all sort of in a split second. And I just remember just being outraged that that's, and, you know, strangely, I was so mad that he wasn't thanking me. <laughs> and so I I just, like, kind of pulled away and, like, shoved him over to the side of the car. And I'm like, whoa, 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 excuse me. I'm like, I think you have this situation wrong. I'm like, your car was broken down on the side of the road. And I, out of the goodness of my heart, gave you a ride home. And this is not how I want to be thanked. And I just like, this is so burned into my mind, this image of him, like, it was like a startle response that like babies get like, and he just is like, and and I'm like, no, I need you. I need you to thank me for the giving you a ride. And he's like, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks. And I'm like, yeah, th- thank me for giving me a ride. He did. And I'm like, and now get out of my car. And he hops out of my car And he's like, the last image I have, and again, this is still like burned in my head, was him like waving to me, like, thank you. And then I drove away and I like probably pulled over after I got around the curve. I'm like, (gasps) but I just remember that feeling of, wait a minute, this is my car. I'm in charge here. Like I chose to give him a ride and I'm not going to let him take advantage of me or this situation. Like, like I have power here and I didn't have physical power, but I had like the power of words or ideas, or I don't know what it was, but like, I very much remember that experience of, Oh no, like you're in charge. And I I don't share that in a way to, to diminish people's experience with abuse or violence, um, sexual assault, that wasn't that wasn't what was going on there, but I just remember learning, like, no, when in doubt, be in charge, like be in charge of you. Yeah. And I think that it's like it, it's carried through my whole career. I Man, I, I could tell you story after story about times where I was like, no, wait a minute, that's that's not right. That's not how this should go down. Like this, we need to do the right thing here, and. And so there's just story after story of like, I think my career was built on just, I don't know, standing up to power, standing up for myself, taking charge of the situations that looked like they didn't have leaders. Um, well, Liz, I mean, first and foremost, thank you for sharing that um, and being open and vulnerable. I, I, I can't imagine that's easy um, to replay that in your head even now. Um, 
but but it's a great visual for us to understand. And then it, it's cool to hear how that's continued throughout your career, where, where you're continuing to, to build on that circumstance. Uh, I'm wondering, though, what about people who haven't had those defining tight moments? Uh, I'm wondering what the narrative is should should be like in their head when, when they're, say, they're middle of their career right now and they haven't been in one of those positions before where they can feel that empowerment. Is there anything they can do now just to kind of get that narrative in their head correct to kind of take those additional steps on the path? Well, um, you know, I think trying to understand power, I mean, it's one of the things I've really tried to understand through my whole career is power and how do you exercise positive power in any situation? And <clears throat> some of it comes from understanding when you're powerful. And there are times at work when you are most powerful and one of the things I've learned is that you are you you hold the most power, and and I should probably qualify. And so I I know I don't need to explain this to you, but it's when I mean power, I don't mean like exercising dominion over other people or like usurping other people's power. I mean just owning your own power to be in control of your situation and your actions, and you know affecting what you can control and. Um, you know, there are times when we are at our most powerful. And the, the, the thing I use to remember this is we are at our most powerful <clears throat> before we say yes and after success. Meaning, you know, once you sign a contract and agree to a piece of work, you've kind of lost a lot of your power. But before you've agreed to it, you hold a lot of power. And so when someone would be giving me a piece of work, like that is when I have power to say, well, wait a minute, let's talk about this. What are you expecting? What's my role? What's your role? And and, and to really use that power, I think a lot of people are just quick to say, okay, I've got it. And then they're stuck and things are going wrong and they don't know what to do, but we're at our least powerful when things are going wrong. But we're at our most powerful when things have just gone re really well. And so that's when like, you negotiate. And there's a, an experience I had at Oracle where I was working with um, three of Oracle's senior executives. And the nature of my role, I ran learning and education there. And so I worked very closely with the executive team. And I was working with the president, the chief financial officer, and the chief technology officer on a big leadership program. And it was, you know, kind of a flagship program for the company, and we we're going to put our top 250 executives through it. And the president, the CFO, CTO, we're all very involved. The four of us, you know, had crafted this together, and it was like our project. We had a lot of fun working on it. We ran our first session, and <clears throat> it had been a success. And we were meeting afterward to plan the rollout. And I'm like, and they're all excited, and they're kind of like high-fiving each other, and it had gone well. And we were about to wrap up the meeting and we had seven more of these programs to run over the next year. And I know how busy executives are and I know how they get pulled in other directions. And I know it's easy to start things, but harder to finish things. And I'm like, you know, I have a feeling that they're going to get pulled in other directions. I'm going to be left holding the bag on this and it's going to like fizzle out. So we're about done with this meeting and they're getting up to leave. And I said, wait, hold on. And I turned to Ray, who was a president who was, you know, ran like a $30 billion operation. It was very busy. And I said, Ray, I said, you know me and you'll know, you know how, like how hard I will work to make sure this is a success. And you know, I'll like knock down brick walls if needed, but I just want you to know that if the day that you stop working on this is the day I stop working on it. He kind of looked at me and I'm like, if you stop, I stop. And, and then I probably explained, you know, this program can't be successful without your full and complete involvement. You know, if you stop, I stop. And he's like, looks at me. And um, I don't really know, like, where I got the wisdom to do it. But he, he just looked at me and he's like, you have a deal. You have a deal. And then Ray gets up from the table and he goes over to his assistant's office. It's just right outside of Jason. And he said, Terry, whatever time Liz needs on my calendar for the next year, she has it. And Terry looked at me like, he's never said that before. And I'm like, yeah, because no one thought to ask him. Like, it's like, you know, I, 
I needed to exercise my power to say, I can't do this without you, and I'm not going to. And Ray, to his credit, never once backed off a commitment. He was at every meeting. He was at time. He was prepared. But it wasn't totally, it wasn't an accident. It was because I said, I need this from you. Like, I can't be successful for you unless I have that. And, um, but that was a powerful position. Um, If I had waited till we were like stuck in the ditch, completely, I I think it would have been my problem. Yeah. Liz, I feel like that could be one of the best stories I've heard to illustrate someone who, who could be earlier in their career or just a few levels down. Um, so many times, I know you work with a lot of leaders, I get a lot of questions where people feel handcuffed in their roles. I feel like that is one of the best examples of kind of flipping um, the switch there and putting in the power back to yourself, which I just love so much. Um, th- this makes me think about something. Uh, I, I know our mutual friend, Dr. Michael Gervais, in my recent conversation with him, he was talking a lot about setting the conditions for success ahead of time, get, getting ahead of things, getting upstream of things, similar to what you're talking about there prior to setting the contract where you're locked in and all of a sudden you have to go and correct things as opposed to setting the right conditions early on. That's one of the things I love so much. Um, I, I just feel like you do such a good job illustrating these stories. So I'm appreciative of that. I, I do want to dive more in the specifics of some of your new work uh, around impact players, but I would love to know, how do you describe impact players amongst high-performing teams? Oh, well, you know, I, I would start with the concept of an impact player in sports, which is really what, what struck me is that an impact player is someone who makes um, a major contribution. It's someone who's talented and skilled and capable, like as an athlete, they they perform well, but they also have this extraordinarily positive effect on a team. You know, they're, they're playmakers. They're people who make things happen. And they also raise the level of play for everyone on the team. And that's kind of the concept of an impact player in sports. And I think we see these same kind of people in the work world. You know, they're the people, they're the people that are clutch that, you know what, you know, when it's an important situation, this is the person you're going to hand the ball off to, and they're going to get the job done. They are going to play on the team and the whole team gets better around them. You know, there are people who who find ways to make themselves really valuable to a team. And they're they're people that, you know, we come to depend on. And they're the people we hand the most important work to because they come through and they do it. It's like they get the right work done and they also do it in the right way. Mm-hmm. And, and we all know this, like, it's the person you're going to hand it to that you just know is going to get it done. Almost like I can cross this off my to-do list and not even have to ever check back with this person because it's as good as done because they're on it. And um, they're also going to do it in a way that everyone wins. They, there won't be blood on the floor when when they're done with the piece of work. Yeah, I, They were yeah. a thrill to study. Well, I would actually love to know that before we dive into kind of like even the origin story of where this idea came to be to really dive into this um, and even turn this into the book. This reminds me of a player. I'm not sure if you're familiar. He went to Duke, he, long time in the NBA, named Shane Battier. And there's a great, I don't know if it's a New York Times article that basically talks about, I mean, he doesn't lead any single category with points, blocks, anything like that, um, but has the highest impact of anyone um, in the league in terms of making everyone else around them better. And I always thought how beautiful that is. He doesn't lead and dominate any single individual category, but we, we all know those people on our team where it's like, oh, wow, just because of their presence, my, my level of play is being raised and everyone around us is as well. Uh, so I, I, I just love that. But, but I love, love to hear, like, w- when did that light bulb go off about like, oh, wow, impact players, like, this is it. This is what I'm diving into. When did that happen for you? Well, it, you know, it took a while for the idea of impact players as like the metaphor to capture it, to come into focus. But for me, it was about studying the other side of the mountain with multipliers. So I had spent the last 10 years teaching leaders, like, how do you lead in such a way that everyone can contribute at their fullest, you know, and, and so that everyone essentially can play big. I, I think I've been long fascinated with this concept of contribution and like, what do leaders need to do so that others can contribute at their fullest? And so, I, you know, I've been out there kind of preaching this message for a decade. And then I start to realize that leadership is a pretty important part of that equation, but it's not the only 
part of that equation that the way the contributor shows up matters as well. See, I've been studying the mindsets and the behaviors of the leaders, kind of like studying the best coaches, but like the mentality and the mental game of the players matters as well. And, you know, I think it was brought into focus for me um, sharply. Oh, I don't know. It was a few years, a few years ago, I was out teaching a workshop or speaking at Salesforce. And one guy was like, yeah, 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 this is great multiplier. You know, like you want to multiply your people, not diminish people, blah, blah, blah. He's like, it's great. But Liz, you can't multiply zero. Hmm. And I was like, is he, is he saying that the people on his team are dinglings? Like, does he say he has a team of nothing dummies? And so I'm trying to process like, I mean, and this is coming from a gal who deeply believes that everyone brings brilliance and intelligence to work. It's like your job as a leader to find it. And I'm like, is he saying his people are zeros? And, and then he goes on to explain like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I can do certain things as a leader, but like I, I need to work with something. And that's what really got me looking at, wow, everyone has been studying kind of the art of leadership, but what about the art of contributorship? And like, what does showing up in a big way look like? And I don't mean big as in suck all the air out of the room, narcissistic, all about me kind of big. I mean, playing big, playing to your full potential. And so that's when I started to look at, okay, And in essence, my research was in a pool of equally smart, talented, hardworking people. So I tried to hold those variables constant. Like they're smart, they're hardworking, and they're capable and they have talent. Why do some people make a big impact and others don't? And it was fascinating. I interviewed 170 managers asking them, like, tell me about someone who's smart, talented, and capable, and is doing a solid job. Like a great person, you'd want 10 of these people on your team. And then it was, okay, now tell me about someone who's equally smart, talented, capable, who's contributing far below their potential. Like they should be killing it. But like, strangely, they're not. And that was fascinating. And then tell me about someone who's smart, talented, and capable, and is who's doing work of extraordinary value and impact. And those were the impact players. So we're not talking about marginal differences here, right? Between some of these people who, who have those those prerequisites. Like we're talking about just monumental differences here, right? With, with how much they contribute to an organization, correct? It, it is. And we asked managers to estimate that. And the managers estimated that compared to kind of a solid contributor, these impact players were like 3.4x like bringing 3.4x the value of contribution. And it's not compared to someone who's just sort of average. It's someone who's solid, capable. You know what? A whole team of these people would be terrific. So it's more than three times the contribution there. And then when we ask them to compare it against people who were smart, talented, and capable, but who were playing below their capability, it was a 10x difference. Uh, I'm wondering, because... because there's some small differences here, right? Like you even mentioned some of those other people, they're contributing. What are some of those things that going into this, you might not have been aware of, but after having talked to 170 of those managers, some different things started to come to the surface and come to light. And you were like, oh, wow, I I hadn't considered that before. Were there any things like that that came up in your research? Well, there was, there's always these surprises. And and then after I see the pattern play out, I'm like, of course it works that way. (laughs) And, And probably the first was that, these solid contributors. So I call this kind of the contribution mindset. And, you know, like, hey, I'm contributing. I'm that all of these people were doing their job. And it was something just so many of these managers said over and over, like, oh, yeah, you know what? We'll, we'll call this person Liz. You know, Liz, like, she's solid. She's doing her job. She does a great job. She does a brilliant job. Like, she does her job. But when they talked about the impact players, it wasn't that they did their job. It was they did the job that needed to be done. Meaning that these were people who weren't just doing what they were told, filling their position. It's in some ways, they exerted their power, their agency, what we had talked about, to go do the work that really needed to be done. Meaning, okay, this is my job, but actually, 
work is full of messy problems that don't sit nicely into any one person's job. Like, in fact, in some ways, the most important work in any organization isn't in one person's job. It's all that stuff in that interstitial space, like the unmanned territory, you know, like, oh, boy, this is a doozy. We're not organized for this. And what we see is the impact players gravitate towards that. And it's not like they abandon their post. They do their job, but they're willing to morph their job scope to pull in those messy problems. And their leaders love this because that that white space in between job descriptions tends to be the manager's job. Like, I got to pick up all the messes that nobody else is dealing with. But these players are like, oh, clean up on aisles 11. I'm on it. It's almost like all that ambiguity that that most people's completely shy away from. They're being drawn. They're like they're attracted to that. Uh, I'm also wondering how people deal because you mentioned some of these messy problems. How do we deal with unknown futures? Right, like things we just can't control. Was there a big difference between high impact player or just impact players in general uh, amongst other people who are contributing, but not to that level? Just being able to handle unknowns and things they can't control. Oh. <clears throat> This was also one of the situations that differentiate people. The five situations we found that really differentiated the impact players from everyone else were, um, I call them the everyday challenges of work, meaning whether you work at Nike or you work at Bank of America or you work at a, a you know a middle school, you are going to encounter these kinds of problems, um, messy problems, unclear roles, like I don't know who's in charge, unforeseen obstacles. Um, moving targets, goals that are shifting kind of mid-project. <clears throat> and the lastly is just like the sense of unrelenting work volumes. Like it just seems like everyone has more work than they can do. And and one of them was how people deal with unforeseen obstacles and, you know, kind of the, the razor's edge, the differentiator between contributors and impact players is contributors, they take ownership. Like, you know what? They take ownership of the work, but when these unforeseen things, like things that are out of their control, come at them, they tend to escalate, which is what, in many ways, we've asked people to do. You know, there's all sorts of escalation matrices, like, oh, if this happens, like, they alert their boss, and they assume that that's the job of a higher up, and the impact players tend to just maintain the ownership of these things. Like, you know what? my job is to get it across the finish line. And I had originally titled this chapter, they finish strong. And I ended up retitling it to they finish stronger because what happens is they don't just take this and like, okay, I'm going to drag this thing across the finish line myself. They're securing reinforcements. They're negotiating for what they need. They're going to get it done, not alone, but they get it done by rallying people, but they never let go of the ownership. So it's this difference of when the big unforeseen obstacles come, do I escalate or do I just keep ownership and pull other people in? And because of that, they really, they finish not exhausted, but they finish actually stronger because they've tackled that. And they, so they call in for help. They call in for reinforcements. I'm actually really intrigued by that where they don't finish exhausted that, you know, they finish stronger where then the next project they're able to contribute more on. I am wondering just the, the cyclical nature of all this, um, are, are impact players, are they impact players all the time or do contributors also show spikes where they're an impact player and vice versa impact players kind of dip down to that contributor level? I'm just wondering if, if you're in that, that zone, are you there all the time or do you fluctuate between them? Well, I think let's. Um, I think there's two ways to think about that. Let me go to this pool of impact players I studied. These these people seem to operate with this mentality most of the time. You know, like their managers would. Just, they they had track records of working this way, which is why the, their their leaders kind of called their name up when I asked, "Tell me about someone who made this extraordinary impact." They'll say, "Oh, they did it here. They did it there." It tends to be. <clears throat> a way of life for them. It's a way of thinking. You know, it's it's a service mentality. It's a, like an ownership mentality. Um, 
and we can go a little bit more into the anatomy of kind of how they think, but then, you know, as other people have been exposed to the idea, I think we look at it and go, okay, for me, yeah, there are times when I have very much had this kind of a mindset and I can point to them, you know, where I was not just doing my job, I was doing the job that needed to be done. When roles were unclear, you know, I didn't sit around and wait for someone to clarify that. I just stepped up and took the lead, uh, you know, or when things, you know, get, you know, are moving that instead of just hunkering down, I'm, I'm adjusting on the fly. And so I think we can all think about times when we were in that space, like that was our mental game. And I imagine you could think about like, oh yeah, there are times when like, that was absolutely me. And then I can think about times when I've fallen out of that mentality and I'm like, oh yeah, you know, I'm a contributor. I'm showing up, I'm doing my job. In some ways we're phoning it in as they say. And usually for me, that's where I get very um, agitated. Yeah, Like I can sense something's not right. Yeah. I think of it there, this internal scratchiness almost that, that uncomfortableness. Yeah. I, I kind of view it one of those times I'm showing up in a way I don't want to show up. I think about these spirals, right? We can either spiral up or we can spiral down. And I kind of think about the, the aggregation of marginal gains when, when I show up in a way I don't want to one of these times, it's key for me not to allow the next time for me to show up the exact same way. I want to go the exact opposite way. And then when, when you do one of those positive moments where you show up as an impact player, make sure then to build on top of that. And the next time you come into one of those, those messy scenarios, it's much easier to show up in the way that, that you want to show up. Um, I just kind of think about that compounding effect and allow those, those little wins to keep piling on top of each other. And it's absolutely a compounding effect. That's what we saw because the way they work offers this guarantee to their leaders and their stakeholders. Like we, we give the ball to Sean and it's going to get done and it's going to get done in the right way. And people are going to end up like smiling and laughing at the result of it rather than like sort of bemoaning the, the Pyrrhic victory. And, and so these people just get handed more, like bigger responsibility, more control. And, and what's beautiful about that is that like people are just continuing to reinvest in them, reinvest in their development and their careers. And I would love to hear, Sean, you mentioned, like, I would love to hear, if you don't mind, like a time when you were kind of like, oh, I'm in that impact player zone. Like I, that was me. And I wouldn't mind hearing about a time you're like, oh man, this is where I feel like I fell out of that. I was spiraling. I want to hear a spiral up, spiral down. Oh, throwing me on the spot here. Um, okay, so I'll kind of set the conditions first because we, we each are all different, right? We have, we have our own strategies, our own methods. For, for me, a big part of this all becomes awareness. And I, I think about self-awareness where I could perform like, a, like an A player, an impact player. But if I don't have that awareness, then that, that moment's going to pass and I'm not going to learn from that, whether that's positive or negative. And, and so I actually think about how, how do I zoom out during key moments, during inflection mm. points. So, I mean, I try to do that. And I even think about this even in between meetings, right? Like, unfortunately, we tend to, to schedule. It's like, I have a two o'clock, I have a three o'clock, I have a four o'clock meeting and just building in some little moments of reflection. This would be five, 10, 15 minutes. And so after a, a moment, a big team meeting, I make sure I can actually zoom out and say, you know what? assess myself here. And then obviously we, we can get this from other people as well. But, but for me, that, that, that's the big first starting step is being able to actually zoom out, have some awareness there to catch myself in the moment. Because what ends up happening, I just think about some, some corporate organizations and you might do a quarterly review and your boss brings up a, a piece of advice and you're like, I don't even remember this. <laughs> Was this three months ago? As, as opposed to being aware in the moment. And I think that has to start with you. And back to your original point around empowerment, I, I view that as an empowering moment whether you're the leader or someone underneath the leader, is taking those individual situations, individual circumstances, um, and having that awareness. And then obviously once you, you understand that awareness and, and you can articulate it and distill it down, then the next time I feel like when, when those, those early warning signs are popping up for a negative scenario, it's so much easier for me to catch myself and, and just even my internal dialogue right there would be, you know what, this isn't how I want to show up. This isn't the person I want to be. Um, so I, I know those aren't specific circumstances, but I think that might be helpful just providing the, the groundwork and context in, in how I approach these moments. I, you know, I think that's so important, Sean. And I think if I could make like a plea to anyone listening is <clears throat> like – 
take those moments to to reflect. And and if you're going to reflect on anything, reflect on what are the assumptions that I hold. And it's funny when I was studying the the behavior of the best leaders and looking at these multiplier and diminished leaders, part of my research was asking people to describe, well, what did the leader do? And then how did the leader think? And I thought, oh, that's a ridiculous question. No one's going to know how their boss is thinking. It's funny. People struggle to remember the behavior, but they absolutely remember the assumptions. And like, how did you even know what that person was thinking? Because our assumptions tend to sort of bleed out. Same in this research. When I ask the managers, like, tell me about an impact player versus an under contributor or contributor. Talk to me about what their beliefs were. I'm always so struck at how articulate we are about other people's assumptions. Like, oh, yeah, they work as if they could solve problems. They worked as if they were in charge but didn't always need to be in charge. They worked as if their job was like an expression of, like, their inner joy. And and I think if we could reflect on anything, it's like, what are the assumptions that I hold right now? Like, what am I believing to be true? Like, for me, it's like, you know, back in that moment in the cab of my parents' little mini truck, like my assumption was, you don't have a right to do this. This is my car. I give you a ride. I'm the boss of this situation, not you. And and like, we can go into meetings and think, wait a minute, my assumption is actually, they're the boss. And I'm sort of a victim of bad leadership right now. Like, okay, wait a minute. That's not true. That's not true at all. Like, I actually have way more control over this situation than it may seem. So I think if we can catch ourselves doing anything is what are the assumptions? Because the behavior just follows from our assumptions. If we get the assumptions right, everything else works. Liz, you you bring up such a foundational and important. I, I'm just like lit up right now because I, I love this because the way I think about this, new information, new knowledge is pointless uh, unless those assumptions are, are in the right mold. I think about these as mental models. It would be like having a, a filing cabinet, right? But if the filing cabinet, the structure is wrong from the get-go, any more files on top of that is just wasted. It's completely useless, meaning you have to update those models, those assumptions, how you view the world. This, this this is not talked about enough. So I don't I don't know if you're working on your next book. I, I hope maybe you're you're gonna dive into this because this this is something that I feel like could just be talked about for hours. So thank you for highlighting that. With, yeah. with regards to assumptions, you were mentioning something a minute ago. Just just the anatomy of how these impact players think, and I would love for you to deconstruct that. I'm just fascinated by this. Well, probably at the simplest level, um, and you know, it's it was after pulling back and like backing away from all of the data and the analysis that I did is like, it was very clear that there's two fundamentally different worldviews that the impact player versus the normal contributor are operating on. And when it comes right down to it, I can boil it down to its essence. The impact player sees what most people see as threats, messy problems, like lack of role clarity, like problems that you couldn't have planned for dropping in your lap, you know, like targets that change. Like most people look at those and go, that's a threat. That's a problem. That's something I want to avoid, you know, and they tend to avoid them kind of like the way um, when you're, you know, I live sort of near the coast and, you know, when a big wave is coming at you and you're like, ah, scary and, you know, flee, run away, like a Monty Python scene. And, you know, you try to run away from it and then it just topples you. And then you're like tossed in the surf. That would be like me out in the wave. And then I would compare that to my son, who's a surfer. And when the big wave is coming, what does a surfer do? You know, and someone who's an experienced ocean swimmer, they dive into it and through it. And it really is the difference in how the impact player tends to see things. They're like, you know what? I'm going into that, not away from that. And uh, like a problem that's messy. Some people might see that as, well, that's not my job. That's a distraction from my job. If I go there to that mess and, you know, by messy problems, I mean, um, you know, things that just don't sit in any one person's job, like then I'm not going to be able to do my job. It's a distraction and it's a threat to my productivity. Whereas the impact player looks at that and goes, oh, that's an opportunity. And that's an opportunity. Like if it's messy and it's no one's job, 
but it's important to the organization, that's a chance for me to add value. That's a chance for me to be of service. That's like, that's a chance for me to be useful. And it's a fundamentally different mentality of, oh, I see all these things that other people see as threats. Like, they're everyday challenges. They're not going away. Like, these, and that was what struck me in the research as I was looking at the situations in which they act and think very differently. I'm like, oh, these are the situations that, see, I've been out of the corporate world for, I don't know, 15 years now, is when I have lunch with all my friends who are in the corporate world, this these are the challenges that they talk about. This is lunchtime conversation. They, and they're everywhere. They never go away. The impact player sees these as an opportunity. And I'm going to go, I'm going to go into it because it's an opportunity to serve. It's an opportunity to learn. It's an opportunity to innovate. It's an opportunity to do things differently. Like one of my favorites is um, these unforeseen obstacles. Well, I can escalate it. Like if this big old boulder drops down on my project, well, I can escalate that and let someone else deal with it. But then I have to deal with how they decide to deal with it. Or I can say, well, wait a minute. And John, you would probably see where I'm going to go with this. And like, well, that was unplanned. Everyone knows that we couldn't have forecasted that, like a COVID pandemic. So I'm going to use this as a chance to solve this the way I think it should be solved. Like I'm going to self-empower and solve it. And it's actually, um, I, I'm a, a volunteer um, teacher of this Bible study class. When the pandemic hit, nobody knew what to do with this class of teenagers early in the morning. And everyone was sort of waiting for direction. I'm like, oh, well, if no one else is in charge, I'm going to solve this the way I think it should be solved. And it was like an, an opportunity to totally innovate and kind of reinvent what we were doing and it's just a different lens. It's it's essentially choosing to work with opportunity goggles hmm. on. I, I love that. It's, it's almost like the, these little light bulbs are popping off, these little green lights when these opportunities come up as, as an ability to skill up not only yourself, but your organization as well. It, it, it's so funny because these things are going to pop up all the time. I, I feel like so many times people think everything works linearly and like the, the world's just a complex adaptive system where, <laughs> where all these unique variables that, that we can't account for and contribute for, they're, they're going to factor in here. And so if you're one of those people that's like, I, I don't want to touch that, that's, that's too messy for me. Like just think about how that's going to play out over the long term for yourself personally, for for the organizations you're in. Uh, so, so I love that, that you uncover that. One of the things you, you hit on too is how productive some of these impact players are. And there's this great story I love. So uh, Bill Gates' mom, uh, she used to, to conduct a, a lot of meetings and dinners and there was this dinner with a lot of high you know, like high valued people, a lot of people doing some big things in the world. And two of the people there were her son, Bill Gates, and then Warren Buffett, uh, potentially the greatest investor of all time. And she asked, what's the one thing that everyone in this room, you can contribute your success to and Bill and Warren at the exact same time, they just shout focus. And, and so I'm wondering these impact players, their ability to get things done. Um, are they doing a lot more or are they just able to focus more and, and use the same amount of hours just more productively? Uh, you know, focus, I think, is a really interesting word. Um, they didn't show, they didn't necessarily work harder than anyone else. Like a lot of them were hardworking people, but not, the effort wasn't the the differentiating variable. It was how they thought about their work. And when it was, um, when you mentioned focus, it's a particularly form of focus. It's not, I am focused on what I think is important, which is kind of in vogue some ways right now, which is like, oh, I'm going to choose my focus and I'm going to focus on this. They focused on what was important to other people. Like in some ways, um, there's a part of me that just wants to, you know how there's things you want to shout from the rooftops yeah. and hope somebody hears you. <laughs> One of the things I want to shout and particularly to people who maybe are earlier in their career is I'd be really skeptical of this advice that we often hear of like, follow your passion do what you're passionate about, follow your passion, because it wasn't the way of the impact player. What they did is they worked passionately on the most important problems of the organization. So rather than coming into the organization and saying like, oh, by the way, here's what I care about. They found out what their, their leaders cared about, what the stakeholders cared about, and then they focused their energy there. So it's focus, but it's not, I'm going to focus on what 
I want. And they weren't even like focused on their own career as much as I am going to be, I am going to work in service to what is most important. But do you know what happens to your career when you go into an organization and you say, I am going to work in service to what is most important to the mission of this organization or department or boss or my teammates? Like, boom, like your career blows up big. Like you, because people are like, wow, you're going to like actually help me get the most important things done here. Join me here. Come into this important meeting here. Take more here. Represent me here. Um, and so it's, it's, they, they make it what's important to others. They serve important to them. Yeah. I, I love paradoxes in life and that's one of them, right? Like the more you help others, the more it's going to come back to yourself there. Um, so, so it's cool to actually hear about that, that, that coming out. Uh, into the real world. I'm wondering across all your work, work, did you, did you come across certain organizations where the number of impact players they had was almost like mind boggling? And I'm wondering if you came across this, did that have any negative effects or did only good things come from this? Mm. You know, I, it's a, it's an interesting question, but one I can't answer because it wasn't how I structured the research. I didn't go out looking for which organizations impact players, we went out and we interviewed managers and asked every manager to identify an impact player and the other. So we got kind of an even distribution. You know, it, it is a question I've been thinking about a lot, which is, can you have an entire team of impact players? And, you know, I don't think you can, can have an entire team of MVPs hmm. because it's assuming that one person's contribution is more valuable than another, but I think you can have an entire team of impact players. And I have talked with many managers who have said, yeah, I've worked on an entire team like that. And I think a lot of us can point to periods in our career where we're like, man, the whole team was playing at their best. Everyone was, was thinking this way. And um, I think, I think it's possible. And in some ways the, the mindset is infectious and it, it tends to spread and it, and it could spread across a team because it's not about like who's got like the most talent. It's, it's about how you play your talent. For, for you personally, where do you think you have the most talent? Where do I have the most talent? Yeah. Like, are you like, do I have a talent? Do well, I mean, I certainly think you do. I, I know you work with it with a lot of leaders, a lot of executives helping them out. Um, I, I, I guess I'm just wondering because one of the things we were talking about a few minutes ago is just being able to, to, to assess yourself. And so I'm wondering, I mean, because you, you, you contribute a, a lot to the world and the people you work with and the books you write. Uh, I'm just wondering where you think like your deepest talents yeah. lie. Yeah. So, okay. I'll tell you where my deepest talents lie. I, first of all, I have no outward talents. Like I have no... My, my family makes fun of me because I'm like, so, you know, meh at, at all. Like I, I could never win a talent um, contest. I have no party tricks. I have none of that, but I, I have a couple like mental capabilities. And I think what I'm good at is I'm good at synthesizing. So like my mind is built to take in lots of disparate data points and information and find patterns. So I'm a pretty good pattern finder and I can usually sit in a meeting and go, I hear three things, like there's three themes in this. And I, I do that pretty well in my research. So I'm a bit of a synthesizer. And it was actually the first um, my first executive coaching assignment. And um, at the end of it, my, my client, he said, Liz, we've been talking a lot about like my <clears throat> talents and my genius and such. He says, I want to tell you what yours is. I'm like, oh, he goes, you, you, have a way you could tell people the truth, but you do it in a way that they can hear it. And I've thought about that. And I think that is something I do well is um, I think I help people see things that might be hard to see sometimes. Like the way that they're sabotaging their own efforts. It, you know, it's something I, I saw in this research. And I, I think it's one of my hopes with this book is that people see the ways that they're sabotaging their own desire for impact, like focusing on what you're passionate about versus finding out what the organization is passionate about and, and channeling your energy there. Um, you know, it's funny. I think I, th th those are probably two things 
I would, I think. yeah, I, I would just love if you actually dive just a little bit further on your synthesizing capabilities, uh, because, because I think moving forward, obviously we know we live in this world where information is coming at us nonstop and those people who can synthesize, distill down the key important bits of information, um, that that's essential moving forward here. I'm wondering if there's anything you've uncovered, um, in order to synthesize really well that others could learn from you from. Well, I, it is something that my mind does pretty easily, but I have a, I mean, a little technique that I generally use is I kind of just do frequency counts on things, which, you know, if I'm doing like qualitative synthesis, <clears throat> I'll just like, oh, here's something I heard in that interview or in that discussion, and I'll write it down and then um, I'll put a check mark by it. And then I hear it again, check mark, hear it again, check mark, hear it again, check mark. And um, I, I, I could show you some crazy binders like full of, you know, how I do that. And so, and then I kind of look at things in all its different iterations. And so I just like, okay, wait a minute, like that was a loud issue, but it's, it's a small, like one or two data points, but it's loud. That's different than an issue that we're hearing over and over and over again. And I'm going to focus on the ones that we're hearing over and over again. Um, yet in some ways, it's like uncovering ambient problems, which is like the things that are just out there. And, you know, they're like low grade problems, low grade, high frequency problems. It's like I look for those. Hmm. But yeah, just, I, you know, even keeping a frequency count of, I learned this little technique that I was very dismissive of initially that turned out to be helpful. I am, um, I got like a little bit of a sucker punch when I volunteered for, you know, I have four children. And so I was looking for a volunteer job in one of their classes <clears throat> and I signed up to be a discussion leader for the junior great books program. And I'm like, Oh, that, that'll be easy. I'll go down and like lead a discussion of like little great pieces of literature with third graders. This will be so easy. And they're like, oh, you need to go to a one-day training program. And I'm like, no, not. <laughs> and I had low power in this situation, actually. So I went down to this one-day training program. And one of the things that they taught us to do is when we were, they taught like these three principles, which I use them all the time in debate. And the first principle was, as a discussion leader, your job is to ask the question, but not give an answer. The second was ask for evidence, meaning don't let anyone get away with an opinion. Like, and I had so much fun with this. Little kids were talking about Jack and the beanstalk. And well, why do you think Jack went up the beanstalk? I'm like, well, why do you think that? What evidence do you have to support that claim? And at first they were like, ah! and then I'm like, and, and they were like, Okay. And they got so good at it. Like, okay, on page 12, it says this. And so that makes me conclude that I'm like, very nicely done. You know, but the, here's the third thing they said, ask everyone. And I'm like, I'm down with that. That's great. I'm going to ask everyone. And they said, and make a seating chart. And I'm like, what? And so they said, make a little seating chart, you know, draw a circle, write everyone's name on it like this. And then just put a check mark after they've said something. And I'm like, I can do that in my head. And I'm like, okay, I'll make a chart. I was like, wow, that was really illuminating, actually, because you start putting check marks by things and you see, wow, that's that person's really dominating. So it's it's just another form of frequency analysis, like what's coming up over and over. Aren't those moments in life that are so unexpected that like you mentioned the volunteering there left you with something and this invaluable skill um, that, that now is this through line throughout the rest of your life? I, I love those moments. I, I want to circle back. I know we're going to wrap up here shortly um, to one of the original things you were saying. You were talking to that that group at Salesforce and and that, that leader mentioned you can never multiply by zero. You're just going to get zero. If you're a leader and you have a team and you have certain people who are contributors and then you have those impact players and those contributors have been around for years, is this something you should continue to try to develop or should you get just out there and start looking for more impact players? I know this is, this is, this is a messy scenario. I'm just wondering how you think this through for other leaders who are listening to this. You know, Sean, I love that you brought up that scenario um, because it gives me a chance to share uh, it's a belief. This is something I really believe. Like most everything, um, most everything I I, I I I I write about, I teach, I share. I'm like, 
I think it's this way, but I'm not totally sure. Here's something I'm absolutely sure about. And I've learned this studying leaders and leaders who bring out the best in others and leaders who have a diminishing effect. In studying this and teaching these ideas all around the world, here's this thing I've learned is that it's not about leadership, it's about contributorship. And that it's this, that all over the world, people come to work every day wanting to contribute 100% of their capability. I have asked so many people about their experience with diminishing leaders. Well, what percentage of your capability do they get? I don't know, 30, 40, 50. I, I've got thousands and thousands of data points on this. And then I ask, what percentage of your capability did you want to give? 100%. 100%. You know, or, well, it was started as 100, but then it went down to zero. And and this is the thing I've learned is that people desperately want to contribute 100%. People don't want jobs. You know, they don't want to be a job holder. People want to be difference makers. People want impact. You know, and I think we're seeing it with like our response to the pandemic and this great, you know, resignation that people are questioning not just where we work, but like why we work and what we're willing to put up with. And and, and I think the, like the most important thing to understand as a leader is that the people on your team that you've stacked ranked, that you've evaluated, that you've stratified in some way, every single one of them wants to contribute everything they have. And every single one of them wants to do meaningful work and have an impact. Now, some of them have had that trained out of them. Some of them have had it beaten out of them, diminished out of them. But it's, it is the human condition. It is deep, deep, deeply wired in our psyche, in our souls to want to contribute, to want to make a difference, to want to serve. And so I think the most important thing is to know everyone on your team wants to do this. And it's it's painful for people when they can't, when something is holding them back, either their leader, so it might be you, you know, as, as their leader or themselves. And so I see part of my work is to help leaders get out of the way of people wanting to contribute all of their capability and develop it. And then helping us get out of our own way. And I think that's what managers can do. If you want a team of impact players, figure out what is getting in the way, what is impeding their impact. It might be you. I mean, maybe you just need to give people permission, which is like, by the way, unless someone very explicitly tells you not, you are in charge. Like take ownership, like do what's needed to get the right job done. Like maybe people just need permission. And then there's a number of things you can do to coach, to develop, to recruit this kind of talent, to bring in some starter talent that has like a positively infectious um, effect on a team. But it's, the will is there. I think I just, I, I, I know that. Yeah. I mean, you, you want to talk about something that's not going to change for a hundred, 500, a thousand years. I mean, that's a universal law of, of nature. I mean, we're, we, we want to contribute. We, we want meaning in our lives. I, I love that you just bring light to that. Um, so many people, we just tend to forget that for some reason. Um, and, and that should be the starting block. Liz, you know how much I appreciate you, your work, the new book, Impact Players. Obviously, we're going to have all of that linked up. Anything else that people should know about the book? Um, one of the things I, I love is, is the number of visuals, graphics, um, key takeaways you bring to light um, to make it easier for leaders to be able to distill this down, learn what an impact player is versus a contributor. Um, then also, how do, how do we understand the teams that we're working with to help get more impact players? But anything else you want to bring to light about the book? Oh, you know, here's my like guilty confession. It's like, if, if someone's going to read the book, feel free to skip the parts that aren't helpful. Like I put a lot of like takeaways and playbooks and here's like summary and synthesis because that's what my mind does. But like, if that's not helpful to you as a reader, just skip over it. Value. But just, you know, there's the, find the parts that are valuable for you. No, I love that. Liz, final one here uh, before we wrap up. If, if you could do this, long-form conversation, sit down, anyone dead or alive, just not a family member or friend, who would you just love having one of like these deep discussions with?
Oh, wow. Let's see, like everyone, like that. I'm a researcher. I love like the dig deep discussions. Oh, I, I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't mind. A, you, you mentioned Bill Gates. I wouldn't mind really understanding how, how he has grown and changed as a leader over the arc of his career. He's been a fascinating one. Yeah. Um, yeah. I wouldn't mind trying to understand that a little bit better. Um. I, I think I might want to have, let's say now I'm, I'm really going uh, some long form conversations with our leaders in Congress who I know are trying to do the right things, but seem to lots of us like they're doing the wrong things. Um, yeah. On, on, in both sides of the political spectrum. Yeah, I appreciate it. Liz Wiseman, I cannot thank you enough for joining us once again on What Got You There. You know what, Sean, thank you so much for the conversation and for the work you do. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.